0: Welcome, everyone, to the third episode of Coffee Break at Armo. In this podcast, we deal with topics related to the field of IR and everything connected to the politics of the ever-changing landscape we live in. We, the forum committee from Clio, the study association of IR and IO at the University of Groningen, we write and we record and produce the podcast ourselves. We already have two episodes released, so make sure that you check those out as well. And for the rest of the year, we will discuss various nuanced IR topics with lecturers from the university and other professionals in order to bring our listeners some relevant information and interesting opinion on the issues that matter in the world right now.
1: All opinions expressed in Coffee Break at Harmo podcast are for informational purposes only. It is not intended to replace professional advice, nor does it reflect the position of Study Association CLIO or the University of Groningen.
0: My name is Kenza Martin. And my name is Angela David. And today we will be hosting an episode discussing the influence and the role of soft power in international relations. With us, we are welcoming our guest, Dr. Eske van Gils.
1: Welcome Dr. Eske van Giels. Thank you for joining us today to discuss soft powers and its influence on international relations. Before we dive further into the matter, could you please give us a short introduction of yourself in your area of expertise? Great. Um,
2: Well, good afternoon and thank you very much for the invitation um, to, to be here today. Uh, My name is Eske van Gils. I'm uh, an assistant professor here uh, in the department of IRIO. I'm in the chair group for European Politics in a Global Perspective and my own research looks at EU relations with countries in the post-Soviet space. I specifically look at relations with the non-democratic states in the region and uh, I try to understand how they are resisting EU norms and norms promotion. So actually the pushback against uh, the EU's normative power and the EU's agenda
0: which is often done through soft power. Amazing, that sounds very interesting. So you mentioned uh, your focus on the European Union's external relation, more precisely on the EU normative power. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course. So um, the idea of the EU as a
2: normative power is already quite old, uh, but it's had different names over time. So what we've seen is already in the 1970s, for example, there was this idea of the EU as a civilian power. The idea is that was that the way the EU is organized is not like a traditional power, but it's actually based on certain principles, and it only has civilian means of power. And in the 2000s, this was conceptualized further, uh, specifically by Ian Manners, but also Richard Whitman played a big role in this, with the concept of normative power. And there, the idea is that it's not just that the EU is based on these principles internally, the way it functions, but it also internationally operates at, in a normative basis, And not just that it also acts in certain normative ways, but also just by being, it can already have a normative influence in the world. An example that's often given is that of the death penalty, where uh, the idea is that countries around the EU who wanted to join the EU would abolish death penalty voluntarily just because they wanted to join the EU. So this idea is the EU never told anyone else that they have to abolish the death penalty, but simply by being it would be an example and what's called a force for the good, and it could actually bring about changes in the neighborhood. It's often also seen as a, a diplomatic power, so that's not really based on the military, but on diplomatic means. Uh, it has a lot of attention for democracy and human rights, and all of this together creates the idea of normative power. Uh, when I teach about the EU, I, I often represent the EU as a, like a little soft bunny, you know, like a cute, fluffy political actor mm-hmm. that doesn't mean any bad in the world. But of course, that idea is also changing. Uh, So the concept of normative power was very much applicable, especially in the 1990s, the 2000s, that that really captures what the EU was in the world at the time, but now it's become less effective, and uh, on the one hand it's less effective because its own power is declining, Uh, specifically the financial crisis of 2008 really hit the EU's own power. Also because there's more divisions inside the EU, uh, growing populism, all of these ideas sort of make this the, the idea of the EU as a very attractive, very strong, united force yeah, less credible. On the other hand, we also see that other actors are becoming stronger and more attractive. So actors like Russia, or China, or also Turkey as a regional actor, they gain in attraction to other countries. And so these two movements, these two dynamics happening at the same time actually mean that the EU's normative power is really being challenged, specifically in the last 10 or
1: so years. Thank you for your answer. Um, You were talking about normative power. Would you say that besides that normative power, the EU also uses soft power in its external relations?
2: Yeah, Uh, it's a very interesting question because uh, of course there are two different concepts, but in a way they're also very strongly connected. So I guess you could argue that normative power but also a civilian power that I mentioned earlier, or ethical power that's sometimes ascribed to the EU. They're all forms of soft power. So the idea of soft power was coined in the 1980s, uh, Joseph Nye was the person who really introduced it, but of course it has existed forever, soft power has always been around, it's just that then it became a concept in IR, and it was used very strongly, it, it really took on. Now, how to define it is really you can see it as a way as the opposite of hard power, which is a more traditional understanding of power. So, military force, uh, economic might, those are classically seen as hard power. And soft power is then, in a way, everything else. So, other means of getting things done, uh, not through force, but more through persuasion or through trying to get other countries to do what you want them to do. Different e- examples are economic incentives example, um, leading by example, so what the EU tries to do, setting a normative standard in the world, cooperating on certain areas, uh, framing others as allies, um, cultural policy as well, so soft power really is a very broad concept actually um, that can really capture everything except for military and economic might. Now the EU has for a long time not used the concept of soft power specifically right that's why i think this is such an interesting question the eu would like to use different concepts normative power ethical power because it's always seen itself as something unique but lately it actually is referring to soft power more often and even this autumn uh, in a reflection on what was happening in gaza joseph borrell he's the, the high representative for uh, the eu's common foreign and security policy He specifically said that actually Europe's influence in the world rests primarily on our soft power. So he used that concept himself as well to identify how the EU actually positions itself in the world. And I thought it was really interesting that he did this. And when you look at soft power in the EU context, I think there's two sides to it. And both of them are very much reliant on the EU's economic power. On one hand, you really have, I think, what you could see as genuinely soft power. So, for example, cooperating on certain areas or having a normative influence right, the death penalty or anything like that. So that could really be seen as genuine soft power. But perhaps the biggest part of the EU soft power is what some scholars would say is actually quite hard power, namely conditionality. And conditionality means that the EU sets, for example, a trade agreement. And in return for financial support, the EU wants that a certain country changes their, let's say, electoral laws. So you could wonder to what extent is that really soft power or is that a way of forcing a country to make changes? So there's been quite a bit of criticism on seeing this as real soft power, but in the end it is still about changing norms in other states. Now I was thinking a little bit about this, and I I guess what it really shows, right, the fact that this type of soft power is also declining a little bit, I think it shows that it only works as long as there's an asymmetry. So for a very long time the EU had a big asymmetry with many states, especially in its neighborhood. And because of the asymmetry in power, the EU could get other countries to do what it wanted because the EU had something it had on offer, money, and that's something that other countries needed. And that's why this whole idea of normative power, soft power worked out. But that's of course changing. Other countries are also growing in terms of economic power and it also diminishes the EU's possibilities for power. So I think soft power, yes, the EU has it, as long as it is stronger, as long as there's a power asymmetry. And the other condition that I think is now being challenged is that an actor has to be unified. So again, soft power, or normative power can work really well, as long as the EU acts as one political actor in the world and can take a clear stance. And that's also being challenged increasingly. There's more and more divisions inside the EU, and we've seen that happening especially in the last few years as well. I already mentioned Gaza briefly. uh, The EU was almost absent there. It is geographically very close, but the EU was almost unable to do anything because it's so divided. A few countries like Ireland and Spain, they were really calling for a ceasefire. But a lot of other countries in the EU, they are siding much more with the Israeli government, and therefore the EU is paralyzed in the end. So soft power only works if you are actually united as a whole, um, and they're not. We've seen a similar example in Karabakh last year, um, 2023, where uh, the Azerbaijani government has been blocking any food and medical supplies to Karabakh for nine months. So there was starvation going on inside the region. There was a lot of pressure on the population. But the EU couldn't do anything. The EU sort of stood by and watched and was also heavily criticized for that. Until in September, uh, the government actually forcefully took over the region. And again, the EU couldn't really do anything. So we see in these two examples that as long as the EU is not internally very, very unified and clear on its stance, its soft power also becomes, well, weakened uh, and it can't do very much. So I think soft power can really help for the EU, but there are some conditions to it. And
0: those conditions have been challenged, especially in the last 10 years. That's a very interesting point of view, um, switching a little bit the perspective and focusing on your research on Azerbaijan. You talked about how Azerbaijan positioned itself more and more on the international scene and particularly on the European Union scene, and uh, do you witness a particular use of software in those relationships with the European Union that could explain this success? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, uh, very much so.
2: And. I think that's also important to keep in mind that soft power is often seen as used by the big actors in the world, but of course all countries use soft power and it's extremely ingrained in the political scene. So we see it happening all the time, but maybe we don't always call it soft power as such. Um, And I think over here also the asymmetry aspect comes in again. So I mentioned earlier that soft power for the EU only works as long as the EU is stronger than the other country. And we see exactly that it is the non-liberal, non-democratic states that are becoming stronger at the moment. And so this asymmetry with the EU is reducing a bit, and relations become more symmetrical. And that's also when the EU loses its own soft power, but also when the other countries can increase their own power. And in the case of Azerbaijan, we've definitely seen that um, already for about 15 or so years, but specifically the last 10 years where the government of Azerbaijan is using lots of forms of soft power uh, to to gain influence, on the one hand to actively gain influence, but also to make sure the EU does not get influence in the country. So pressure for human rights or democratic reform can be sort of pushed away through its own soft power means. So you really see a game going on in a way between the two sides, both trying to get more power through soft power means. Now, just to give you a few examples, Officially, for example, Azerbaijan really adheres to democracy and human rights, but in practice, that's not happening. Right? So you sign an agreement, but you don't do it. Or when there's a lot of pressure for the opposition to get uh, in power, they've allowed one member of the opposition to take a seat in the parliament in the last elections. No one else, but at least you know it's, it's a way of showing, look, one person can be represented, so officially now the opposition is represented. Another very strong instrument for soft power is organizing big events and we've seen more countries in the region do that in the last few years so Baku has been hosting Formula One it's been hosting the European Games this year it's going to host uh, the COP 29 uh, and it's very proud of that right and it will get a lot of international attention over it it will give a good opportunity to get more positive attention and and improve its own reputation Um, and a concept that's also been used for these sort of events often sports washing where big authoritarian countries can use big international, specifically sports events to improve their own reputation. And that's a very strong sense of soft power. Um, Now, that comes at the expense of the own population. So, for example, to build all these big buildings, whole neighborhoods have been demolished and, and people have just been relocated. They lose their homes, get little compensation for it. Uh, but also a lot of money is put into building and organizing all these massive events uh, while there's a lot of poverty in the country itself. So soft power really has those different sides to it. Uh, A few other examples that are maybe unconventional ways of soft power is what's called caviar diplomacy, uh, where the government would give expensive gifts to representatives of international organizations, hoping in return that they would get a more positive reporting on the country we've also seen that they're hiring PR companies in the West to try and improve their own reputation. So these are all forms of soft power. I think you could, in the end, capture them as soft power. It's not really what the the concept of soft power was designed for, but we see new ways of getting influence in world politics through
1: non-traditional ways. Thank you. So you were mentioning cases in Azerbaijan and Gaza. So in the light of current events, would you say that nowadays soft power wields um, greater influence than hard power? Yeah, it's, um, it's
2: very, very difficult to answer that question. And I think all I can say is that it's a very nuanced issue. And I would say right now both of them matter a lot. So I think since the 1990s, the general idea was that international liberalism was the way to do Politics, multilateralism, cooperating with big international organizations, having agreements, and the idea of force, of military force, seemed a bit old-fashioned in a way. Now there's of course notable exceptions, like the invasions in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, whatever happened in in Libya as well. So of course military force was still part of international relations, but it was considered a minor aspect of it. I think the war against ukraine really changed all of that very much there's a lot of new discussions of yeah it's, it's it's happening on the ground a country invades another country and suddenly military force is very much on the foreground again and that really leads to a lot of rethinking when we look at the eu specifically of course the eu is suddenly supplying weapons to another country we we've not really thought that was possible until now the eu is increasing its its military production So it challenges the idea of the EU as a civilian power very, very strongly. On the other hand, though, I would also like to say I think the war in Ukraine also really emphasized soft power as well. Because what we have also seen happening is that the EU uh, started stronger economic ties with other countries in the region. There's much more trade going on with the countries around Russia, for instance, to get closer ties with them. And of course, we've seen that there's a membership offer to both Ukraine and Moldova. And that is sort of another core example of the EU's soft power, where it offers membership in return for certain reforms, and that gives it soft power, because it means it can shape certain things inside these countries without using hard force. Um, It also makes the EU more of an attractive power. It has been providing support, it's given humanitarian aid, it really tried to, to give support to Ukraine and the international community as well. It's been uh, trying to support um, Ukrainian citizens who had to flee the country. So I think the war has shown both that hard power matters, still matters, <laughs> but also shows that there's definitely a chance for soft power. Um, now, the last bit is challenged a little bit because it's exactly that unity, everyone's afraid of right now right? the unity in europe when it comes to supporting ukraine as soon as the unity fades i think soft power will also be gone because you need unity to offer conditionality or to speak up against russia or to actually give humanitarian aid so um it, it's a very odd mixture of soft and hard power what's currently going on i would say now i'm also a little bit Pessimistic, perhaps, <laughs> in this regard about the future and whether or not soft power will still matter or if hard power is going to uh, play a bigger role again. I, I'm i convinced that soft power, of course, will always stay there. It right. we're not going to get rid of it, it's there. It's always been there. It's such an intrinsic part of international politics that it will, it will last. I think the bit where I'm a bit more pessimistic about it, perhaps, is that a lot of... Um A lot of states are starting to explore possibilities of soft power and new forms of soft power. I mentioned sports washing already, for instance, Uh, but we see that specifically a lot of authoritarian states are starting to use these soft ways of conducting policies. In the past, we've seen a lot of uh, clear resistance and very obvious defensive behavior. But actually what we now see is more cooperative behavior. So we see that there's this discourse of everyone works together and we're all allies and all of that. But behind the scenes, there's a lot of friction and a lot of resistance going on, but it's just not that obvious. So there are different ways of soft power. For example, the the PR exercises uh, that I mentioned or uh, trying to influence the caviar diplomacy. So it's a very smart way of getting power in international politics and I think we need to get more knowledge about what soft power is and what forms of soft power are being used by different states in the international community so that we can also understand what is really going on uh, behind the scenes. Because I think the classical dichotomy between hard power and soft power is, is very simple and I don't think it, it always captures the realities, right. there's so much more going on behind the scene and I think we need to try and really understand what's going on there uh, and see who is
1: playing the game by which rules well thank you so much for sharing such interesting insights with us with that we would like to wrap up this episode of the podcast Coffee Break at Harmo we would like to extend our gratitude towards Dr. Van Hills for joining us today and providing us with your professional and interesting insights on this topic and we will also like to thank you all for listening
0: today and we hope that you enjoyed it we from our side enjoyed making it very much as we continue to navigate through the constantly evolving currents of conflict and diplomacy we look forward to bringing you more energetic podcasts that shed light on all of these aspects of the world and if you enjoyed this episode make sure to tune in next month for our podcast until then this is Kenza uh, and Angela and thank you for listening to Coffee Break at Armour